You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I am talking to Grayson Stewart of Norma Jean. Norma Jean is one of my personal favorite bands. They absolutely slay. I've been following them for years and years, and the riffs are just unstoppable with that band. They are so heavy. I absolutely love them. If you like heavy music at all, you should definitely be checking out Norma Jean. Grayson is a very interesting case study in that he was a massive Norma Jean fan himself before joining the band, which is a very crazy experience. I can only try to wrap my feeble little brain around, and we get into how that happened, what that was like for him, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Just a little bit of business to get out of the way before we get into this episode, and that is a quick reminder that if you want to support this show and you're planning on buying some gear, please check out the affiliate links associated with this show, namely ToneMob.com slash Reverb if you're buying anything off Reverb, or ToneMob.com slash Sweetwater if you're looking for anything on Sweetwater. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes a little bit of those purchases, whatever they may be, and it helps come back and support this show, and it's no extra work for you. Additionally, I would ask you to check out the Tone Mob YouTube channel. It's very small, but I am putting a lot of effort into it, including posting the video versions of these podcasts. So if you would like to watch us talk about this stuff instead of just listen, you can head over to the YouTube channel. Just search Tone Mob on YouTube. It'll pop right up. And I would appreciate you liking, commenting, subscribing, all that good stuff, because... You know, that's the world we live in these days. we got to be multi-channel. And speaking of multi-channel, the Tone Mob Instagram is, of course, a good follow for daily content. I'm always posting over there. Some of it funny. Lately, I've been feeling a little bit trolly and, uh, you know, posting some semi-hot takes just because, I don't know, feeling feeling like it. I'm feeling feisty. So if you would like to follow along there, you can go to the Tone Mob Instagram as well, and uh, yeah, let's get spicy together. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into this episode with Grayson Stewart. Oh, I should mention, we talk for like an additional hour on this week's Patreon. We talk about the UFO sightings he's seen. We talk about just living this life in general, and uh, yeah, it's a great, great addition to this week's main episode. But let's get into this main episode. Let's do it. Here we go. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, somebody I'm very excited to talk to, Mr. Grayson Stewart from Norma Jean. What's going on, dude? Hell yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude. Excited to be here. I am a big fan of the band, and uh, I'm not as familiar as I should be with your story as far as it pertains to joining the band, and I, I want to hear all, all of those those details, but I think the best part to start off with is probably where a lot of these start, which is 
you know, how did you get into playing guitar in the first place and what led you to this style of music? Yeah. So pretty much since like from a very early age, I was always really interested in music. Um, I didn't, neither one of my parents necessarily played music or had an interest in it, but I spent so much of my childhood just in cars with my parents going on road trips or, or just driving around town because my dad could never sit still. <laughs> so he like on a, you know, over the weekends, we would just get in the car and drive around and way before I had a cell phone or anything like that. So I'm just sitting in the back listening to whatever's on the radio. And uh, I don't know, my most of my upbringing was, you know, listening to like classic country music mm -hmm. and like 50s and like the oldies and, and things like Same that. Here. And so that's kind of where a lot of it started. And I think my first like real interest in music came from, it was more about drums actually. And the movie Drumline, I remember watching that as a kid and I was like, that is so sick. I just loved like the, the rudimentary elements of it and the, you know, in the movie Drumline, it's not as it's not a bunch of crazy things being played. It's more like hip hop beats and things like that, that they are playing in the context of a mm -hmm. drum line. So I just fell in love with like grooves very early on. And uh, so as a probably like around eight or nine, I started really begging my parents for a drum kit and they were smart and said no, because <laughs> that's like nine times out of 10, a horrible idea. So I like would keep chopsticks from like when we would go to a Chinese buffet and I would like keep those in the car with me mm -hmm. and like play the drums on the back of the seat when my mom would take me to school in the mornings. And uh, so I like eventually kind of gave up on the drums thing. And this would be when I was 10 years old in the summertime, my grandmother would keep me while my parents worked. And I began watching country music television every day around that time because it was kind of the only way for me to still listen to music. And also now I was able to see like visual elements of music for the first time between music videos and like live concerts and things like that. So the video that and song that did it for me was man, I feel like a woman by Shania no Twain. Way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I was like sitting on in the chair at my grandma's house and that music video comes on and you know, it starts with that that lick and all the dudes in that video are playing like double neck SGs and like flying Vs, just like really badass stuff. And uh, I remember calling my mom like literally as soon as that video was over and I was like, you got to get me guitar lessons. And so two weeks later, I think I started taking guitar lessons and I just, my grandmother had bought me like a really cheap Fender acoustic and that's what I started learning on. And yeah, that's when I was 10 years old and I didn't, wasn't ever like really into sports, but I played most of them just because I didn't have any other real hobbies or mm -hmm. anything. And uh, I pretty much quit all of that immediately after I started playing guitar. That was the only thing I was interested in. It was something that like I actually excelled in my learning at faster than everything else. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just immediately falling in love with it. And about a year later, I or maybe not a full year, probably like six to nine months later, I got my first Stratocaster. It was just one of those Squire Strat packs with like the little amp that comes with it. And uh, so I started taking that to guitar lessons. And I think the first time that like 
I really like experienced playing electric guitar and what that feeling was, was when my instructor, he taught me how to play Back in Black because like ACDC was my first favorite band I ever mm -hmm. had. And, and I still love ACDC. I, I think they're amazing, even though so many people hate on them. Oh, and like I get it, like on. their voices are like goofy at times, but AC for the time, awesome. like yeah, that, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, like introduction I had to like any type of live performance or anything like that was playing at, and I went to a Catholic school when I was younger too, even though me and my family were never Catholic. We just, I went to that school because they had like an after school program that I could stay at till somebody could come pick me up. Did that feel weird? So not being Catholic in a Catholic school? Uh, I mean, I went there from such like an early age that I didn't really know different. Honestly, like I was in that school from like kindergarten through sixth grade. So to me, that was just normal. But it was weird because, you know, you got to go to like the mass, the, the church, church service stuff that they would have. And since I wasn't Catholic, there was like there were things that I wasn't allowed to do. Okay. And so it kind of worked out in my favor because I just got to go like sit in the back, you know, yeah. and like wait for everybody else to Read be done. Read Guitar World or something. But uh, yeah, pretty much. And uh, so we, there was a Catholic, at my Catholic school, there was a like music recital that they would do. And it was, you know, all the kids playing those little plastic recorder flutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but for like the, handful of kids like played musical instruments or did whatever they could also perform at that if they wanted to so that that year I, th I was 11 by this time but I played back in black at this like catholic school music recital and uh it was sick because all of the dads loved it you could tell like all the old teachers and everything were like what is happening but the dads were about it because there's here's a little thing about going to catholic school they like to drink. And so any like any like school function that has the parents involved, there's like wine going around, there's beer going around, and they like to party. So it was a pretty fun like first step into playing live music because I actually got a pretty good, you know, pretty good feedback from it. And then after that, it was like almost an addiction because, mm -hmm. yeah, it was fun playing the music, but it's a whole different feeling and a whole different world when you, you get to perform that music in front of people. Yeah. So I think the next year I did the same thing, but that year I played Sweet Home Alabama. And the dads were and, about uh, that too, weren't they? The dads loved that one too, yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So when did you yeah. join your first band and what was that like? So my first real band, like I had a few friends once I got into like my early teenage years that were playing music and like we would jam in, at our buddy's house but we never like really decided on a real name. We never had songs that stayed the way that they were written the week before. So it was almost more of just like jamming some basic ideas all the time. And then about the time I was 15 or 16, like my first real band established and it was called uh, Cape Fear. And we were basically just like a Malian in the Sons of Disaster. He is legend, like ripoff <laughs> band. Like those were our favorite bands still are some of my favorite Absolutely. bands. And so we just played like really Southern tinged like metal music. I live in Arkansas. So like growing up on country music and being from this area, all that was just so, you know, natural to me. Like the way that that, that style of music comes across and the, the small elements and um, just the little details. I always thought that was the sickest thing once I found bands like Maylene and, and He Is Legend that incorporated those elements into their music. Mm -hmm. I was like, 
this is perfect. Yeah. This is everything that's familiar to me, but everything that's also new and exciting to me at the same time. So uh, we started playing right around when I was 16, wrote a bunch of songs, and then um, there wasn't a much of like a local scene necessarily around where I live, but there was like a couple little hole-in-the-wall venues um, that hosted those kinds of bands. And so I just immediately started playing shows there almost every weekend. Sometimes we'd play like twice over the weekend and it was a really good way to like cut my teeth and you know learn what that that world is like not the playing in front of like a cafeteria full of parents that are going to clap no matter what you do but now you're playing in front of people that are like critical of you and like are just wanting to hear music that they consider is actually good and uh you know i was lucky that my first band like i actually still really like a lot of the songs that we made oh, wow. it's not like yeah, it's like not necessarily one of those embarrassing first bands where you're like doing some whack stuff and like you you did some really cringy stuff. I'm sure there was plenty of that also, but for the most part, in the past when I've gone back and like tried to find our demos on the internet and stuff, I was actually like pleasantly surprised for it being our first band and and for uh, none of us knowing what we were doing, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's a, so, that's a that's very unique, I think. I, I go back and there's like maybe one or two. I'm like, okay, that's okay. But I remember like yeah. my high school battle of the bands. We got up and played two covers and one original. The covers were, were fine, but the original mm -hmm. was just three different songs all mashed together. It makes absolutely yeah. no sense. There's no like real transition. I'm just what are we doing <laughs> that that's part of it though man like because my songs back then were the same way there was no real like songwriting to it it was just like riff soup everything's <laughs> yes. just like duct taped together you <laughs> yes. know but luckily like at least the tempos were the same so it didn't sound too out of left field when it just went into like the 10th part of the song mm -hmm. yeah but it was mine cool. was acoustic and then like a weird like emo part and then a chuggy riff but none of them, none of it, it just all was just like the transition was like big cymbal hit, grab different guitar, completely yeah. different song. <laughs> it's like, this is yeah. our song. Okay, whatever. Yeah. But I mean, that's cool, man. You got to do some of that stuff to like figure out what you really want to do. It's true. You know, it's true. So, yeah, because at practice, like we would jam like all kinds of stuff. We would like, we used to try and learn like Born of Osiris songs and then we would play like, you know, straight from the path songs and, and stuff like that. So it all really kind of meshed into just like all those different types of bands and, and elements of um, heavy music and songwriting. Once it filtered through the four guys who like were trying to make this one thing, it still came out relatively cohesive. That's cool. But That's cool. also, there's no way it could like be a popular band because <laughs> sure. you know, there was nothing, there was nothing catchy about it. There's nothing to cling on to, but it, it still like wasn't bad for like a first shot at playing live. I music. hear you. Definitely. So then what was the progression like from there? I mean, I'm, I'm sure Norma Jean wasn't the next gig. No. So after that, um, so that band was called Cape fear. And in our local regional scene, we had a, best friend band that was called Harvester. And we had played a lot of shows with them. They were very similar um, musically, but they were they had been around just a little bit longer. So they were like one step above us. And they, you know, they would get more shows and they had a better like 
they had a better draw than us for whatever that was worth in the time. And uh, I was probably 19 at the 18 or 19 at this time is my first year in college. And I'm working as a bank teller. And I get a call from uh, one of the dudes that was in the band at the time. And, and he was like, yo, you're up. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're in Harvester now. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Because like the, one of the other guitar players had quit and they needed a guy. So I was just like the friend of the band that was always at their practices anyways. And like they had always joked about just having three guitar players so I could be in the band. So this was like, you know, the logical next step. So I joined Harvester and that was probably 2015 or so. And uh, I'm in college at the time. I was working at a bank. A little bit after working at the bank, I started working at a gym. So I was like going to work at 5 a.m. then going to class all day and then spending pretty much every second outside of all of that, like trying to make this band work. So we were like playing shows anywhere we could get, like making our own T-shirts, doing that whole thing, like making stencils and bleaching T-shirts and, and doing that whole mm -hmm. thing. Um, and we were kind of lucky because for a second there was a bunch of cool like not national tours that were coming through Arkansas, but they were like bands would do runs to get to like festivals or to start a tour. And they would just do like, you know, routing shows that came through our area. And so there was like a, a little window of time where we were getting like a bunch of cool opportunities for being a, a Arkansas local band playing with like Beartooth and my ticket home cool. and, uh, like Silent Planet, Plot and You, Lorna Shore, like all those bands back then would come through and play like our tiny little spots that we had. And we fit pretty well with a lot of those bands when they came through. So we did a lot of those shows, got to like hang out and meet dudes that were doing what we wanted to do more consistently. And uh, so we kept that going. Then there was a period of time where like Harvester kind of like, we didn't break up, but we were on a pretty big like just break because we'd had like some dudes fall out and there was like some weird stuff going on there. And then during that time I started touring, playing drums for an indie rock band that's called brother Moses. And they're out of Arkansas. I went, I grew up with some of those guys, but they all live in New York. Now they, they relocated probably around 2015, 2016 or so. And, uh, but the summer, probably the summer of 2015, I'm, I'm kind of spitballing that time frame, but we did like a full U.S. tour and we I had never really played music outside of Arkansas at that point. We had I'd maybe gone to like Louisiana to play in Shreveport or something like that, mm -hmm. but no real touring, just like weekend warrior type stuff. So. And I like I was decent at playing drums, but it still wasn't my like main gig. But they needed a dude and, and they were some good friends of mine. And, you know, it wasn't metal drums, so it wasn't as technically difficult to make work. And uh, we loaded up in one of the dude's dad's Suburbans, rented a U-Haul trailer. <laughs> and we played just about like every state, it felt like in the continental U.S. at least. And uh, I look back on that still as it's like possibly my favorite tour I've ever done because everything was so new. And I, it, every day it was just like you're in survival mode because we didn't have, you know, anything. We didn't have money. We didn't have support from a label or anything. We were just literally kids in a car on the opposite sides of the country at any, any given time. And, you know, going through all of the like bullshit that 
early bands have to deal with. We got all of our gear stolen in uh, California Jeez. one time. Uh. Like, yeah, we walked outside and um, we had driven overnight from Phoenix to Laguna Beach because we were going to do like a radio show the next morning. And we we do this all night drive. We get there, do the radio show. And then one of the dudes in the band's mom like sent us some money so we could just get a hotel for the day and like sleep in it because we were all so shot. Mm-hmm. And uh, we like sleep in it. And we come back out later that day. I believe it was later that day. And the trailer door to our U-Haul is just like swinging in the mm. wind. And luckily, like they didn't steal my drums because they were at the back of the trailer, but they stole like guitars and basses. And we had a bunch of boxes of food that we'd keep back there because we were just broke. They stole all of our oh, food. Oh, great. They, <laughs> yeah. And then we had like tents and um, hammocks because we would do a lot of camping on that tour. And they stole all of that stuff. So like that's one of the biggest, you know, hits you can take as a band, mm-hmm. and especially when you're a band that's like nobody in the grand scheme of things. It's it feels like, you know, that's it, or we should just probably call it. And we had a conversation about like, do we keep going? Do we just try and get home from here? But the dudes ended up like, you know, posting about it online and making like a GoFundMe thing, and it, it raised a lot of money in a day. So we were able to go to the like LA guitar center and just buy a bunch of like Squire and Epiphone instruments and like get stuff so we could finish the tour out. So, you know, it was one of those things where none of those guys were too bummed because they weren't like super attached to their instruments, like the way that I am with my guitars personally. Um, but yeah, we went through that and just like saw every part of the country and, and that, that experience really like pretty much like caused me to be addicted to it. Like after doing that and getting out of my town, because where I come from, like a lot of people, like this is where they're born. This is where they were, they're raised and they stay here and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you do get out of that and you kind of get a taste of like experiencing all the different cultures and just seeing different areas of the country and you get to do it through the context of playing music, it's pretty hard to like go back to normal after that. Mm -hmm. So I was just addicted to it after that point. And, um, we came back from that tour. I think I did like one more short tour with them. And then they all relocated to New York. But I was still in college in Arkansas and still playing with Harvester at the time. And um, just moving to New York New York at that time wasn't really in the cards for me. So we start trying to do stuff again with Harvester. I'm just like desperate to like make anything work. So we go and make a record, um, try to get like you know, some type of like label that's interested in it. And about that time, oh, here, I'll back up a little bit. When Harvester also became friends with Corey, our singer, Norma Jean, during that last like probably year and a half before I ended up joining the band because we bought one of the old Norma Jean tour vans from him when he was selling it. So that was kind of like our intro with Corey. And when I say our, me... And the vocalist of Harvester, his name is Jimmy Reeve. He's my best friend. And he's now Norma Jean's tour manager and just like right-hand man. He's basically in the band, but he doesn't play an instrument. And um, so we become friends with Corey. We start making our record. We get Corey to do a guest spot on it just because he was like a good dude. You know, he's, he's always been really awesome about like trying to help out the local scene wherever he's at. 
and he's never you know had that like rock star attitude about any of it like he's managed bands that were from our area before just trying to like help people do the thing that have no clue what they're doing so he did that for us and um that was like his first time you know ever hearing me play guitar and just hearing like the context of what i did and the style that i had and norma jean used to play um at a local bar here in town before they would leave on tours it would just be like a really cool like small bar show and uh, i used to like take my friend's ID because I was underage and I kind of looked like him. So I would like sneak into the shows with his ID. But uh, they did another one of those bar shows and he asked Harvester to open up for it. So we did that. And uh, they did that tour, came back from it. And I was sitting in like, I think my economics class one day in college and I get a text from Corey and he's like, yo, you got a second to talk? I said, yeah. And so I go out in the hallway and he's like, he does this thing where he asks questions that are to get answers for other questions. So like, he like prefaces stuff in a weird way. Like, how how do you mean? So like, ultimately his question was, do I want to be in a band and tour and in like in Norma Jean? But what he asks me is like, so what does Harvester want to do? Like, do you guys just like want to make records, like play shows on the weekends or are you trying to like, you know, make something out of that band and and do some touring? And I was like, absolutely. Like, I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to be on the road and and like do the thing. And so once he gets that type of response from me, that's when he follows up with the next question, which was like, okay, well, do you want to go on tour and and fill in for us? And I was like, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was like the call that kind of like changed it all. And it was so hard to go back into my economics class after that <laughs> and just like act like I cared at Admittedly, all about what I was going like, on. I, I, I don't feel well. I got to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm out of here. <laughs> it, it, it was really tempting, but I was like pretty close to graduating at that point. Like I had maybe three semesters left. So that tour was going to be in February of 2018. And I think this was probably around like, October, November, maybe of 2017. Mm-hmm. So um, I was able to like finish out that semester. But I think the next day I went to my advisor and I was like, yo, after this semester, I'm out. Like, don't sign me up for classes. Don't do any of that stuff. And he's like, all right, whatever. So um, that tour comes up. And leading up to that tour, I'd been sent like a list of probably like 30 something songs to learn with also there was going to be like a handful of shows maybe in December that we were going to do. And so he sent me this huge list of songs to learn. And I ended up like really messing up my body. My, both of my arms, I got horrible tendonitis in them and I got carpal tunnel in my wrist because I was playing guitar for like nine to 10 hours a day, just trying to crank out learning as many of these songs as I could to get, you know, to get familiar with them in time for December. And uh, luckily those shows didn't happen because I ended up having like not play guitar for about two months. And I had to do all this like crazy physical therapy and like red light therapy on my Mm -hmm. arms and on my hands to get myself back to where I could even like function. But uh, yeah, that was leading up to the Redeemer anniversary tour that we did in 2018. And it's pretty much just been doing that ever since. Wow. Hi. I'm Vincent, and I'm here to talk about the Marist Mercury X. 
My dad's always going on and on about how cool Maris is. He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800 hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations in 33 banks and something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man? That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at maris.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. All right, Dad, now can I have my Pocky? How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than 2 bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com DistroKid. You'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off. They're already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com DistroKid and get your music out there. Was it at all intimidating to come into such a well-established band that has a very, very solid reputation for, especially for live performances and a really rabid fan base? Was it intimidating at all to just step right into that? It is, yeah, it was obviously like extremely intimidating, but Norma Jean was my favorite band before I was in it. Mm -hmm. And it was the only band that I had any kind of like personal ties to or connections with. <clears throat> Cause at this point, you know, we knew Corey, um, one of our old guitar players, Jeff, me and him had became friends cause I used to buy guitars off of him and trade with him and stuff. And, um, I kind of always knew that Norma Jean was going to be like, if I'm going to do this, like that's my ticket, you know, that's mm-hmm. the only way that this is going to happen. So <clears throat> from the time I was like 16, up until I did my first tour, I was kind of like catering everything that I did as a guitar player to be in Norma Jean to an extent. Like the gear that I played, I would like, you know, just deep dive to find videos and pictures and interviews, whatever, to see like what those dudes in the past have been using. And I had all the same gear um, because I listened to them so much. A lot of my writing style was very, very similar also anyways. So and like even from what you're saying about the explosive live show, I took that stuff to heart too. Like that was just as much an influence on how I treated Harvester and Cape Fear as the songwriting was. Mm-hmm. So kind of all the elements of being a Norma Jean, which is like writing cool riffs and like throwing your guitar in there on stage, all that stuff was kind of second nature to me by the time I was given that chance. That's probably but why you were given even, that chance. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Like I think I just did the did the work 
for four or five years before I got the question, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so since this is supposedly a gear podcast, at least that's what I trick people into believing when they click on it. Let's dive into that. You said you obsessed over all yeah. that stuff. So what does that, what did that look like at the time and how has that evolved to now? So at the time that was, you know, 5150s. Um, at one point there was some like orange heads involved over there. So like I had a block letter 5150, even though the ones that they were using <clears throat> around the time that I started coming around were the 5153s. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had a 5150, I bought an orange TH30. Um, it was a lot more pedal and guitar related than amps, but the big pedals that like I knew that I needed was the T-Rex Octavius octave pedal. Mm -hmm. It's like a big purple square one. They're pretty hard to find now just because I think, honestly, like a lot of our fans bought them up because once we started talking about what pedals we used a lot, we, we do so much both in the studio and live with that octave pedal. And it just has like, it's different than a pitchfork or any of those other octave pedals that are like, are your staples mm -hmm. because I don't even think that it's a matter of the, the mix controls being better or anything like it doesn't track probably as precise as like the, the pitchfork does, but it also has a boost in it that really makes like pretty fuzzy and so when you click both of them on at the same time and you dial it in the way that we do, and it all also depends on like the context of where you turn it on, sure. but it, it just sounds like a bomb going off. And it's the like heaviest thing you've ever heard in your life when you hear it like coming out of a full blown speaker cabinet. And, um, so that was a pedal very early on that I tried to get my hands on eventually found one, um, they used those Digitech drop pedals mm -hmm. to change the tunings, and that's what we still do today. So I got one of those very early on. Even though Harvester and Cape Fear, we didn't have songs in different tunings, but I was like, well, I'm going to need that pedal eventually anyways. <laughs> so I just bought it. Manifesting. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much, dude. Um, what else did I... I'm going to look at my board. Um, I didn't have like any delay or reverb anything before then, which is funny because when Corey called me that first time and he was like, so are you like, are you proficient with like using pedals and stuff? Like we do a lot of delay things and like, are you comfortable with that? And I was like, Oh yeah, easy. Like I, I do that all the time. <laughs> Never didn't own a delay pedal. I don't think I owned a reverb pedal. So I had to get some of those. Um, I got like a boss. I tried to get, I think it's the boss DD 20, which was like the, the three, I'm pretty sure it has three um, at least two switches on. Yeah, it. I'm trying to at least yeah. two. Or let's see, the bot the Boss DD20 is the two. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. It's got the screen in the middle. But there was another one that one of the other our one of our other old guitar players, Philly, used to have, and I can't remember what it was. But um, got got delay pedals, did all that thing, and guitar wise, um, the first guitar that I got that was me just trying to be a Norma Jean was I bought a ESP Phoenix off of Jeff back in the day. And it was just like a transparent, really dark red finish. And that's the guitar. If you've seen my Instagram or anything like that, or live videos, I have a, a shell pink Phoenix that I play pretty much all mm -hmm. the time. And it's that guitar. I just had it refinished. Oh, okay. But I've had, yeah, I've had that thing since I was like 17, probably. 
And, you know, it's honestly like a pretty low model guitar. It's just a 401 series LTD. But, you know, I'll be buried with that one. Mm -hmm. I would let everything else in my house burn before I lost that guitar. <laughs> so I, ha I got that guy. Um, then I had bought a uh, one of those white Vipers. Mm -hmm. It was like a Viper Deluxe 1000 or whatever. And Jeff was interested in trading me for it. So I ended up getting a um, EC1000 CTM, which is like the full thickness, like true Les Paul thickness eclipses that they okay. would make. I didn't know they did that. And uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty sick. Like after you play one of those, you really don't want to go back to the standard eclipses that they mm -hmm. make that are the thin ones. They're still great guitars, but once you play like a, a thick one, you're like, all right, this is like a hunk of wood and it's, it's just hard to go back. From yeah, that. I'm a Les Paul but, guy, so I, I get it. Yeah, like I've had a couple Les Pauls. None were like really nice. They were like studio ones or whatever. And I liked them, but one day I'm going to have to like, you know, break the bank and, and really go in and get one. I would love to get like a true Black Beauty or something like that. But you never know. It's my, not in the cards right my now. My first Les Paul, my first electric guitar, I'm looking at it right now. You can't see it on the screen, but it was one of those red faded models that guitar center did yeah. i think this one's from 2003 yeah. uh now granted it's had some upgrades over the year but it still feels like home i have yeah quote unquote nicer les pauls i've got a mm -hmm. an 81 custom that i absolutely love but the i don't know that faded one it was like 400 bucks and every time I pick it yeah. up, I'm like, I can't believe this was my first guitar. This thing is amazing. Like, it sounds so good. So I don't Dude, know. Dude, that's the crazy part about guitars. Like, the price point doesn't mean a whole lot. Like, at the end of the day, that 401 Series Phoenix, like, it's obviously, like, not the best made guitar ever. And it's not, like, the smoothest and easiest to play guitar ever. But in terms of, like, mojo, for me personally, mm -hmm. like, that nothing is competed with it. That shell like helps, though. I know it does. It does. Yeah. Like there's also that that um, aspect to it, where like when you look at a guitar and it just looks so sick mm -hmm. that it's like, all right, like there's no way I'm not gonna like write something cool with this thing. Yeah. But so I got that. Um, I got that full thickness Eclipse. Traded the Viper to Jeff, and there's probably oh, I got a. It's a '50s reissue Mexican Telecaster. Mm -hmm. That's like the um, like blonde finish uh -huh. on it. And Jeff used to have one of those also. So I, you know, I at this point I had like three or four guitars. That was just me being like, "Hey guys, like, you know, look over here. Whenever you're ready, I've got the <laughs> I, I've got the gear. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, like just give me the call. But uh, yeah, so that's that's pretty much like what I what I'd done leading up to to that point to just get myself ready when that day finally came mm -hmm. hopefully came did you have to even though you were preparing mentally and physically for this you know eventually happening when you first stepped on stage with them for the first time what did that feel like i honestly like i remember that show pretty well but i can't remember much like what it was like being there like i remember what it looked like and i remember certain things about it but the the feelings necessarily because i was just on such like adrenaline and autopilot mm -hmm. and uh it was pretty like overwhelming but also 
I, it's always been one of those things for me, like no matter what the, the show is or like what the deal is that we're doing, as soon as like the intro sample starts or the stick click hits, whatever it is, it's like all kind of gone for me after that point. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just pure like survival mode, as cheesy as that sounds, but that's how it feels to me. It, it's always felt like you have to do this very well or you're going to die. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Just because like that's everything that I've ever wanted. And so like I, I treat it like with such like a like high sense of like importance, you know, that it, it's not just like playing rock music to me. It's not just playing a, in a band or whatever. It's like a very like spiritual and like physical thing for me. And like, I know that sounds wicked cheesy, but it's just, it is what it is, you know? And especially like being there because the first show of that tour was in Florida. And, uh, you know, that was by far the, the furthest I'd ever been from home playing music, like guitar wise, you know, and playing music that I really loved and believed in. So it was just like a pretty, like almost out of body experience. But I remember Jimmy, um, he was doing merch for us at the time. And I just like, right before we went on stage, I like looked over at him and I was just like, Hey, I'm glad you're here, man. Mm -hmm. And that for both of us was like a really big moment because it was like, all right, like, even though he's not playing in the band, like he's out here too with us. Like he's part of our team. He's part of our crew. And like, we, we, in some sense of the word made it, right? you know, even though like, in the grand scheme, like Norman Jean ain't Metallica or anything like that, <laughs> but still was like one of our favorite bands and it was still so much more than like, you know, most people get to do and we, we treat it with that respect and we're very like blessed and very um, humble about that fact. Mm-hmm. So, but that show, it, it was a pretty like, pretty crazy feeling after it was done and like there wasn't any major hiccups, like I didn't mess anything up and like we played this, the set from front to back. It was like, all right, that worked. Rip that band-aid you know? off. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's like only up from here for the most part. Mm-hmm. And we'll just do it again tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, just, you know, you say they're not Metallica, but you, they were your favorite band. And so yeah. they're successful enough that there are, there are thousands of people who this is also their favorite band. So yeah, because you feel the same as they do, they had to have, come with like a, a a weird sense of responsibility in some ways like i gotta do this justice oh a hundred percent like it it was never like a you know a self-serving thing for me it was never like oh let's see how cool i can be so that i can get x y and z out of this later it was like man i've been given an opportunity opportunity to like add on to the legacy of a band that like has a very large footprint in this genre of music Mm -hmm. and has like, you know, done a lot for the evolution and popularity of this music. Like, you know, I, I get it that like, we're not a Lorna shore in today's time or anything like that in terms of like rooms that we're playing or whatever, but like you, something cool, the more that I toured and stuff, cause I'm, I'm, much younger than most of the guys that are in the band and that we are around when we tour. But, and like, I knew the respect and, um, affirmity that people had for this band, but 
once you start seeing that also from other bands, like you, you get told stories about how much this band means to them also, and it's not just a fan thing, that really helps you like understand the like level of what you're doing and the importance mm-hmm. of it. Because like you're still like there's dudes in some of the biggest bands out right now to, that Norma Jean was one of their favorite bands growing up or had a large part in in something that helped them get to where they're at. And so, you know, that's just as important. Yeah. Because in a roundabout way, that's still helping keep this kind of music going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're you're totally right with that. Like there was a pretty big sense of responsibility from A, just being in the band and like playing shows and doing that side of it justice. But especially when it came to like writing, when we did the next record, you know, there as a fan of the band, there was like things that like I would want to naturally hear as the next progression of records. And then there was things that I wanted to do that were just my personal tastes and styles also that I wanted to bring to this band. So there was a lot of like, you know, checking myself and being like, is this Norma Jean? Yes. Is this something that the fans would like if it's not already something that's in our wheelhouse? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, there was a lot of that. Like I definitely take our fans into account a lot when writing this. Well, because you are because one, so. <laughs> exactly. And they're like, the our fans like don't just listen to it for like the one-liners and like the breakdowns. Like our fans love riffs and they love gear. And so like there's a microscope over, you know, what I do as a guitar player also. And I love that because I, I like that pressure. It's something that we're like, when I'm in this room writing songs that are going to be on the record or whatever, and I spend 30 minutes trying to get this one delay part to like echo the way I want it to, I can like at least know that there's going to be somebody out there that appreciates that I did mm-hmm. that. And it's not just going to be buried in the sands of time. <laughs> I think a lot of people who aren't as into effects, which probably aren't people that listen to this podcast, to be fair, for the most part, don't fully appreciate that there is a lot of time that goes into crafting those sounds. And I mean, yes, it's fun, of course. Uh, That's why 99% of us get into pedals in the first place. But there is a lot of work and understanding that you gain from mapping out a pedal board and building out a signal chain. And I've actually found that it helps me it helped me understand early on like gain staging in a recording studio and doing production stuff a little bit more like oh i just innately understand this because i know how signal routing works on a pedal board better than yeah i'll just plug it into the amp brother and uh you know yeah. there's nothing wrong oh, with either approach man. but there's something gained there for sure yeah there's like a big learning curve when like you start really trying to incorporate effects into large parts of your songwriting because I, the first pedal board that I ever made was the most unusable thing. (laughs) Like it was just like three or four different like distortion pedals in a row. And then like some random other pedal I had in it, you know, in my brain, not doing any research and not knowing how anything works. I was like, Oh yeah. Like this makes perfect sense. This pedal will make it, 10% 10% heavier and then this one will make it 20% heavier and then this one just makes it sound crazy and I'm sure it will sound great feeding into each other. Mm-hmm. No, it sounded so bad because <laughs> if you stack three distortion pedals on top of each other, all that compression, it just, it sounds like, 
just sounds like static at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to like dial in a delay pedal to make like a lead type tone, or I didn't know how to use a delay pedal to make it more of like a wet effect, like an ambient type of wet effect. Mm-hmm. So I was always just like, this was more harvester days because when before the NJ tour, like I made myself figure all that stuff out. But in the harvester days when I was still messing around with the pedals, like I none of them were ever once like dialed in the same way twice. <laughs> you know, it was just like, oh, I'll get, I'm sure it'll sound fine and then click it on and it sounds horrible. <laughs> well, and that's that's part of the thing that I, I try to do, you know, when I'm doing demos and things is I don't I'm not gonna sit there and like twist all the knobs and show you what every single setting does because some of them don't work, you know, real well. Yeah. Like for, for most people, I just try to, here's a setting I found that I like, here's what it looks like, yep. you know, and go from there because I've done knob twisting in the, in the past where I'm just like standing behind it and like going through the full sweep of the knob. And I think that can be helpful, but a, I thought those videos were kind of boring and B, yeah. it's like, how about just just show me your four favorite settings and what you can do with it, and that exactly. will give me more more. It's almost a less is more approach instead of a paralysis by analysis approach. Hundred percent. Like when you're trying to just get something to sound good for like a basic usage of the pedal, like there's no use in like t- putting each knob at noon. And then one by one, turning it like 10% more or whatever, and then putting it back at noon, going to the next knob and, and slightly adjusting that. Mm-hmm. Like, find something that sounds good and works for the part you need. But then also, like, when you're in creative studio mode or whatever, I, I do a lot of that, like, mad scientist mode oh, yeah. where I'm just like, all right, crank this one, turn this one off, like, j- just see what comes out of mm-hmm. it, you know? Oh, yeah. The, the effects chains I'll set up out here are just absolutely ridiculous because I have no one to tell me not to. And it'll just yeah. be, you know, into this stereo reverb. And then that from that, it's going to have modulation on one going to one amp and not on the other that goes to the other amp. But it'll have a distortion pedal on the tail. And, like, it's, it gets... It gets very absurd very yeah. quickly. There's a lot of tap dancing. That's and good though, man. Knob twiddling. Like I, th- I wish people did more of that because, like, I feel like, at least in like the heavy music world, a lot of that stuff is kind of getting over, not overlooked, but it's just not as important anymore. Mm-hmm. Like you've got bands like Deaf Heaven and, and like the shoegazy bands that will really dial in stuff like that, and I, I love that. Yeah. But in I think terms Holy of just Fawn like, is probably my like favorite that does dude. that. Yeah. Holy Fawn rules. Yeah. So good. But, you know, non-shoegaze bands, like I don't consider Norma Jean a shoegaze band, but we have like shoegazy type parts. And that's because like we like experimenting with pedals and we like, you know, doing the mad scientist thing in the studio. And and we've been lucky, um, especially with the last record, Death Rattle, our producer was just like, so gung-ho with us about doing all that stuff like the floor looked crazy <laughs> all the pedals we had all over the place just ripping stuff apart like he never once was like all right like we should probably just settle on something it was always like all right try this try that try that we'll record all of it and then you know kick ourselves in the ass later when we have to go through and listen to every one of those and pick <laughs> one eventually you know you have any pictures i'd love to see photos of that I'm sure I could find some. Yeah, I did take a picture. I know the last day that we were in the studio, I, t- I brought out like every pedal that we used and like lined them up on the ground, and like it was a it was a pretty big one. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel a lot less weird. The record I did with my band years ago, we took we we're all 
three guitarists who were all gearheads, and we took basically everything we owned at the time to the studio. And when we were done, we did the same thing. We like set it all up and like posed it and like took pictures. And uh, oh yeah. And now I, I, I look at those pictures occasionally, like wow, we we did have quite a bit of stuff. But now all these years later, because I'm a sick sick man, I have more than that just by myself. Like it's yeah. really. I'm like, ooh, we we thought that was just insane back then, and now I'm yeah. like, look behind me. Ooh, uh. That's a good feeling, though, man. <laughs> like when you realize you've accumulated a lot of gear, like especially over the past few years, between like companies sending me stuff to try out or or whatever, or being gifted pedals by friends or anything like that. Like I kind of look around sometimes. I'm like, when did I get all of this? Yeah. <laughs> you know. I remember because it's like kind of like a slow roll. Like one day you're just like, damn, I've got two drawers full of these pedals and I've got two fully set up pedal boards over here. Mm-hmm. We are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the Gear Exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there that's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, Right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the gear exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby, because let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fund new gear purchases, and that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write that next huge riff. Hello there. I'd like to introduce you to your new best friend, the Chaseless Audio Lossy. Lossy is a collaboration between Chase Blitz and Goodhertz. It's meant to give you some control over those weird digital artifacts that come with every compressed audio. You're getting it right now. All the changes that are taking place are strictly coming from my plane dynamics. I'm just interacting with the pedal and letting it do its thing. And some true stereo goodness. If you'd like some more details about Lossy, I invite you to head over to chaseblintsaudio.com. I think you're going to like what you find. Yeah, I remember sending a picture to one of my friends back in the day, I'm like, look, I've got five different fuzz pedals. And I was like, how, yeah. now I'm like, how quaint. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Oh man. What is fuzz pedals are easy to just like go overboard with. Cause in your head, you're like, nah, this one's going to sound way different. Like this one's <laughs> going to make a huge difference. And like, sometimes they do. And sometimes it just sounds like a fuzz pedal, you know? <laughs> At the, and at the time, I think back to those five, it was like a Russian Big Muff. They were all very pretty different. Mm-hmm. Russian Big Muff, something that I found out later to be kind of a like a Mark III tone bender. Uh, mm. A Roger Mayer Octavia that was in the like rocket ship 
enclosure. I don't know if you've seen those. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. then like, I can't remember. I think like a fuzz face style. And those are like, I really probably only needed those ones. I probably didn't need any more yeah. after that. <laughs> you don't need any more unless it's like some weird fuzz that has like some crazy extra element to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you only need like a couple fuzzes if it's just about like germanium circuits or, or whatever that stuff is. But there's companies like Death by Audio where that company, I'm like, all right, like I get why they make 10 fuzz pedals or whatever mm-hmm. because they all actually like do some crazy stuff that makes them extremely individualistic. Yeah. And I love stuff like that. Like I can't really say much about it right now because it's like basically not even really started yet, but I am working on like, hopefully it's still going to work out to do like a signature pedal. And I'm wanting to, my idea that I'm rolling around in my head is like doing a fuzz pedal, but it's going to have some like quirky elements to it. Like whether that's delay, that's like getting introduced to it too, or some kind of like, reversed effect i just want to make a pedal that sounds that has the ability at least to sound like something you've you couldn't normally get out of one pedal mm-hmm. at least yeah you know that sounds cool so i'm gonna have to do some like a lot of research and like a lot of like thinking to figure out how to make whatever these sounds are in my head that i'm hearing but i know that it's going to be at least somewhat fuzz focused yeah i i feel that i i've been fortunate to have a few a few pedals that I've worked on over the years with different companies. And it's always a fun process to go through and try to dissect exactly what you're, what you're after uh, with somebody who knows how to make the magic happen and what requests you are requesting that are absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) Things like that. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Do you do much or have you messed much with like Wallace audio stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've got their 385 drive and I've played a lot of their stuff over the years. Yeah. Yeah, they, I love that company, man. I love those guys. They've treated me so good for like years now. But this pedal, actually, it's the uh, Eons mm-hmm. fuzz that they just came out with recently. They sent me this one before it was released to um, basically like just figure out some like I, I sent them like three or four settings that they were like, you know, how I had all my stuff set on it. And I think they're eventually going to put all those things out there on the internet for like people to be like, all right, that's his settings for this pedal or whatever. Oh, cool. But like that fuzz was really awesome to me because it's got five, yeah, five like different modes, which I, like are the clipping modes. But the coolest part about it is that it's got this like voltage knob here in the middle mm-hmm. that goes from three to 18 volts. So it like, you can really like kind of tame it way back and depending on which mode you have it set on, you can almost get some like really cool, just like, like medium breakup type amp tones out of it. Like if you're playing it through a clean amp, Mm -hmm. at least like you can get some just really sick, like, like mid gain rock tones. And it's not some overwhelming fuzz pedal all the time. That's very cool. That's what I like about their stuff is it's like very versatile, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's I think I've always gravitated I'm starting to do a little bit things a little bit differently recently but I've always gravitated towards clean amps and getting all of my dirt from pedals and even yeah. right now my like one of my favorite high gain tones is a clean like clean amp with like a closed back cab and I'm using the Victory Amps Kraken pedal for all the distortion Hell yeah. and I'm like this that thing's awesome so good like it sounds better yeah. than some of the high gain amps that I have available, 
uh, yep. um, like clean amps with really good pedals in front are are kind of underrated, uh, especially with yeah, the dude. quality of of distortions and things that are available these days. I, in my opinion, yeah, that that victory stuff is awesome. Um, I play in another band called Great American Ghost, and we did a, like a bunch of international touring last year. And so I was trying to like set up a new fly rig to use mm-hmm. um, because we didn't want to have to rent all the time and. Basically, the way our fly rig works is that our other guitar player, Nico, he has like a two rack space, like, or yeah, two rack mount rack thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has a VHT power amp in it. And then he was running a angle 530 preamp, yeah. which is what we actually both run when we're in the States. Like we'll take that stuff out and put it into a three rack unit when we're in the States. Mm-hmm. And we, so we're basically running an identical rig at that point. But when we go to Europe, it's too big because it's already huge to try and carry that thing through customs oh, yeah. and everything. It's so heavy and like we won't check it because there's no way that thing would work if you put it inside of a plane. No, somebody throw it at bottom. some point. Yeah, but um, so I I almost bought one of those Victory preamps. I don't remember if it was the it's probably the Kraken, but I looked at a few of theirs and those were so awesome. I thought they sounded amazing, but they seemed like they could maybe break kind of easily. Just because, like, they've got tubes in them, right? They've at least got one tube in them. So the it, the I get a little bit mixed up on their terminology because, like, the V ones are their pedals. They're just mm-hmm. pedals, like like dirt boxes. Thorpey Effects yeah. was involved in helping design and make those, and they're just a classic stomp box. But they are all based on the amplifiers that they make like the full tube amps. So like the, the V1 yeah. Kraken is is a distortion pedal, but it's made to sound like the Kraken tube amp. And then I want to yeah. say it's like the V2s or V3s. I can't I can't remember how all the what V it is. There's like they're all Vs. Yeah. <laughs> so I get a little confused. Yeah. That I believe that one is like a floor-based one that you're talking about that does have like a tube pre and a solid state mm-hmm. power section to run out to either your speaker cab or some direct outs to run into a interface or a mixer or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I feel like if you have that, it's designed to be on the, on a board. And if you're the mm-hmm. one transporting that board largely, if it can fit in a, like, you know, carry on, you'd probably be, you'd yeah. probably be good. That's the thing. Like when I fly though, my boards don't fit. Uh-huh. Like I have to check them. Because I use those blackboard blackbird pedal boards, mm-hmm. so they like, they have that live-in case, yeah. and they're just a little they're like two inches too big to be considered a carry on, which sucks. But you know, knock on wood, like I've flown all over the world with those things and never had any like huge malfunctions or like nothing's ever been too broke on them. I'll usually like put some extra padding in there if it's like an overseas flight that I'm doing, mm-hmm. but even still, it's not too bad. But I didn't end up getting the the victory one. Um, I liked it a lot, but I was trying to find something that was a little bit more like tank, mm-hmm. you know. So I ended up getting a um, KSR Vesta preamp, and it it was all right, you know. Like it it worked decently well for like just being a fly rig mm-hmm. and making sure I could play metal music. But that thing ended up breaking on me just randomly one day when we were in Europe. And I was kind of like out of luck because we didn't have a backup rig or anything like uh-huh. that. And the only, all the other bands we were with were running like 
quad cortex and Kempers and all that. And like, that's just not my, my thing. Mm -hmm. Like that's not the kind of bands that I play in. I think it's great. I think a bunch of, you know, friends of mine use that stuff and they make it sound awesome. But for me, who was barely able to like make this microphone work so I could talk to you right now, (laughs) there's no way that I could use all that stuff right now at least. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing was my, the other guitar player, Nico, he had as a joke bought a boss metal zone Mm -hmm. at like a music store that we were in in Germany somewhere. And he just had it with him. And he, he came over to me like when I'm freaking out, trying to like figure out what's broken and why it's not working. And he's like, he just goes here, like, try this. And he hands me a metal zone. And I'm, I look at him cause I think he's like messing with me. Cause like I'd never in a million years thought to do that. And I'm just like, dude, like this is serious right now. And, uh, he's like, no, I'm being serious. And he's like very very gear tech savvy and like i see where he's know. going with this i do yeah so like i replaced the vesta with that metal zone and dude it sounded crazy mm-hmm. like the way like i had to like tweak it a bit because it was the waza craft version too so it, it was a little bit more um intricate but once we found a tone on it it sounded insane yeah because i was boosting my preamp anyways with a Maxon um, ST9 Pro Plus. That's like my main boost for now both bands. I was just using it with Great American Ghost, but now I'm also using it with Normagene to boost my um, dual rack. Mm-hmm. And it's just an amazing boost, man. Like the way you can like tone shape with that thing. But you feed that into a metal zone, into a VHT power amp, and it, it just sounds like Cannibal Corpse. It's crazy. Yeah. The, the, metal zone, the metal zone is the butt of many jokes. But really, the even the original, the cheaper ones, the reason it gets kind of the the hate is because it's one of the pedals that, and I, I just interviewed Joey Sturgis, and we were talking about this when it comes to him designing software. Like, yeah, sometimes you don't want to give people so much rope that they can hang themselves. You just want them True. to stay within a, a few lanes. And some people are like, no, I want all the flexibility. But the example I gave is you referenced the Mesa's. Like mm-hmm. Mesa's sound awesome. I have heard Mesa's sound great. I have played Mesa's and got to you know got in there and tweaked them and made them sound great. But they have, generally speaking, so many options. It's easier to make them sound terrible. And oh, dude, yeah. <laughs> and the metal zones. I've heard. Way. I've heard ten times more dual racks or triple racks, whatever, sounds so bad that like I was always like that amp sucks in my brain. I was like I don't. <laughs> Like, that's just a bad amp. And uh, then I was, like, looking into getting something new to use with NJ. And I I was talking to Nico about it because me and him are just, like, that's all we do. When we're on tour, we're literally just talking about, like, this thing is all day, every day mm-hmm. with, with me and him in the van or on the bus, whatever. And he was like, dude, you should try a dual rack. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he owns one. And... Uh, you know, you just have to know how to dial it in right and know how to boost it right, which I had never looked into how to do any of that because I'd just written that amp off in my mind so long ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and purely out of like me not doing the the education on the amp. Because obviously if like there's a bunch of like well known bands using it, then there must be like some usability to it and it must not be trash. Right. Like I always considered it to be. Right. But the way that I um, currently run it is how um, 
it's like similar, not exactly, but it's like pretty similar settings and similar idea to how Adam from He Is Legend runs his, which is where the mids are cranked all the way up and the treble is all the way off. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I've got my bass a little bit higher than than he dials his in with, and the presence is a little bit different also. But setting the EQ that way on it and then boosting it the way that I have my max on set, it's it sounds pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Because the, the dual recs are cool. I had never played through one before. But then getting to experiment with one and like Nico explaining a lot of it to me, there's like a, a separation thing that happens with those duels where like the low end, it almost sounds like it's coming out of a different amp somewhere. It almost sounds like a, a tone blend between two, two amps if you set it a certain way. Interesting. And I'd never heard an amp do that before. But it, like once I've really got to crank mine up and like put it through a cab. I was like, oh, man, I, I've never heard Amp do this before. I just realized the, the time, and I still have a couple classic questions I need to ask you. And, uh, All right, let's do yeah, it. And bef- but before I do that, I like to give the guests a chance to you know, plug anything they want to plug, shout out their grandma, you know, say anything you want to say to a, a couple thousand people right now. The floor <laughs> is yours, sir. Hell yeah. Uh, I mean... Just thank you to anyone and everyone that is supporting something that I'm doing, something that Norma Jean's doing, something that Great American Ghost is doing. Really appreciate all that. Um, always a big shout out to Tony at ESP and Tyler and Philip and everybody over at Walrus Audio. Um, all the dudes like helped me get to do stuff like this. And uh, yeah, just thanks to anybody that gives a <laughs> about anything that I'm doing. <laughs> I, I think I can echo that as well. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for getting this far into the podcast. Yeah. All right. Classic questions. And maybe we maybe we already answered this first one. Let's see. What is your favorite boss pedal? All right. I heard you ask Luke from Dirty Nil this one, yeah. <laughs> and I think he said the HM2. And I don't personally own one of those, but I have used them before, and I've used a bunch of like HM2 clone type pedals. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I think I would have to go with that one also because like as much as I love the boss delays, like I use a DD seven and a DD three on a couple different boards. Mm-hmm. I pretty much only use them because they're built like tanks and they're simplistic and do the thing that I need in a live setting. But in the studio, I probably wouldn't, that wouldn't be the delay that I grab. So I'd have to go with probably the HM two also just because it's such a polarizing pedal. It is like you either love it or you hate it. And it just sounds like it, like that's a pedal that like, so many people have tried to clone. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I, I really dig stuff like that to where like, it carved its own niche out in the gear world, you know, for good, bad, or otherwise. Yeah, I love the HM2. I personally do not like the uh, traditional chainsaw setting that uh, is so popular. I, yeah. I've tried to, I, I like the sound of those records that that's based on too, or where that comes from. But mm-hmm. I've tried to explain this to people before. I'm like, this only works in this one context, and you're not even taking into account like the gear they were using in the studio. We don't really know anything specifically about that, or at least most I yeah. don't. And so everyone's just like, yeah, turn it all all the way up. I know that's fun to say, but realistically, there are a lot better sounds in an HM2 than that sound. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but, you know... For simplicity, simplicity's sake and for people to be like, oh, yeah, I love the HM2 because it's just like a diamond pedal. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I I like that. You know, mm-hmm. there's gonna be ten thousand bands out there that sound awful because that's the only thing that they know what to do with it. But <laughs> there's something like beautiful about that at the same time. I think you've inspired me. I might make a clip with the HM2 later for the for the gram or something. Uh dude, if you've got a, a swollen pickle, then you can get some insane HM2 sounds out of that pedal too. I have pedals like that. So, hmm. I'll have to mess around yeah, with that later. The swollen pickle is an amazing fuzz, but you can get some crazy like HM2 style sounds out of it, but you can shape it better. Okay. So it's not quite as like hissy. Yeah. Because I use one of those for Great American Ghosts also, and it's like you can get a lot more like bass out of it, which makes it not so unforgiving mm-hmm. to the ears. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Grayson yeah. Stewart, HM2. All right, we'll mark that one down. There's a That's right. there is a listener of the podcast that is cataloging all of these answers, so I, I will probably be publishing them on the website at some point. But it's he had to go. I, he asked, "When did you start asking that question?" I was like, "I have absolutely no idea," but I know it wasn't from the yeah. beginning. And I think yeah. he got back to episode like one seventeen or one fifteen or something. So, yeah, he he had to he had to listen to a lot of endings of, <laughs> of this show. <Dude. laughs> That's dedication, though, man. Yeah. That's good that you've got like fans that are that like into into figuring mm-hmm. out like such a small aspect of this whole show. You yeah, know? it's 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 it is a very popular. Like people really, really enjoy. Some people like have told me I only click on guests that I'm curious about what their answer to that question and the last question wow. is. So yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the last question, this is the one that gets dicey, a little bit controversial at times, but it's necessary. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Favorite kind of pizza? Um, I'll say that my favorite pizza I've ever had was from Domino's and it was during COVID I'm pretty sure and I was like so hungry at like 2 a.m. there was probably some kind of like inebriation involved (laughs) and uh, I got on the Domino's app and I ordered some kind of pizza that was like you could like customize the whole thing Mm -hmm. and I got like Alfredo sauce like four different kinds of meat. I got mushrooms and pineapples. Whoa, whoa, like just, whoa. <laughs> just like everything you can think of, I like put it on that thing. And I will remember eating that pizza for the rest of my life because <laughs> I was like, it doesn't get better than this. I've had like the whole Chicago deep dish thing. I've, you know, eaten, I don't know how much pizza out of New York and the whole thing. It's all good, but I'm a man of like, quantity over quality <laughs> when it comes to food so in terms of this question like i've got to go with my like drunk custom pizza from domino's <laughs> i feel like everybody has one of those right like, oh, they I should if they don't uh, put a put it all put it all on there yeah yeah <laughs> Dude, it's like turning the h and two up all the way i see you know, it's like that kind of thing i'm getting i'm yeah. drawing a connection now this is all starting to make a lot more sense yeah, dude. <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to dive into Patreon and see what kind of uh, nonsense we can dig up over there. It should be fun. Hell yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, everybody. For Grayson, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's not forget that there is an additional hour of conversation with myself and Grayson. And we talk about UFOs. He has personally witnessed a few, 
and we talk about just living this life in general and what that looks like day to day for us. It's a very, very good talk over on Patreon, where for five bucks a month, you not only help support this show, but you get extra content beamed to your ears every week, including additional conversation with this week's guest, which, like I said, this is an additional hour. We really get into it. We get into the weeds. It's a whole nother full-blown podcast. There are so many great conversations over there, and it really helps out a lot. And it truly is like less than a coffee these days, five bucks a month, and it's beamed right to your ears. Oh, and for that price, you also get the ad-free feed. So if you're tired of hearing the advertisements, I understand why you would be, but hey, I got to feed my family too. You can go over there and get it for five bucks a month. You will get the ad-free feed and the bonus episodes, or if you just want the ad-free feed, three bucks a month will get you that. Okay, that's enough plugging. Go check out Norma Jean. Go check out Grayson on Instagram, and I will talk to you on the internet very, very soon. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, 
And my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.